cool. We can work with this. Welcome to the Breadcrumb Trails podcast. We're your co-hosts. I'm Gina. I'm Carol. And I'm Danny. The purpose of this podcast is to give information in an informative and direct manner to educate as well as entertain. So I guess you could call it edutainment. So we decided we want to get a little bit into who we are in this first episode, and we're going to start off with our experience in travel, and then we'll get into the meat of what this podcast is about. We're going to start off by going a little bit into our experiences and what makes us wanting to talk about the subject of travel. So I've been on the road since I was a child. I have been to almost every province in Canada, except for Newfoundland and the territories. I've been to several cities in Japan. I've been to New York. I've been to Chicago. I'm an avid travel nut. I absolutely love everything to do with the idea of travel and with the thought of travel. And I have traveled starting in 2014. Um, before that time, I traveled a little bit in the United States. However, it was 2014 when I started to do some overseas traveling with my parents. It started out in Asia, and I'm hoping to uh, expand it all the way to Africa, mostly Europe, mostly as far in into the world as I can get. Um, my biggest travel experience was going to Rome. Um, outside of that, I've done some of Canada and some of the States as well. And I'm looking to expand that into more different countries that have different cultural experiences. So next we decided we're gonna get in, a bit into our personal goals. What we want to take out of this, what we want to share with you, the listener, and how we want to encourage growth, not just with you guys, but with us as well. So my personal goals, I'm Gina. I am the founder, CEO, chair of Trailblazer Media, which is the umbrella that this podcast falls under. As I stated before, I have a huge interest in everything travel. I was born to travel. I belong on the road. The open road and I are old friends. I want to see everything in the world that I can see, and I want to bring it back home. I want to share it with everybody that I can in an informative and educational manner. So it'll be a growing experience, not just for you, but for me as well. My goal with this is to inspire you guys. I want to make the world seem like less of a scary place than it seems like now. When I first traveled, the world was terrifying, but I was inspired by a couple of people and it got me out into the world. It got me to experience everything. It got me to take a bite of the world, so to speak, literally and figuratively. What I want personally is to keep being inspired, to connect with you guys, and hopefully as I inspire you guys, you guys will connect to me with your experiences and I can experience your culture through you guys as well. I would say I'm very, I guess, green in the sense of traveling. I, I want to travel more. I want to be able to go and experience cultures. I would say I'm very, very curious in the sense that there's one thing to read about a place and there's another thing to go there and learn about it. And through this, while I can read about and talk to people that have the experience, 
it will also prepare me for that chance that when I do get to go, I will get to have that experience with also having the knowledge behind me. I think that was pretty well said, to be honest. So we also decided that we're going to tell you a fun fact about ourselves. We want to kind of open up. We want you guys to get to know us a fair bit. I mean, this is a journey we're all on together. This is an experience. It, it's a shared experience, you know, common experience. And we hope that by the end of this podcast series, not episode, but series, that you take something away. That being said, we also hope you take away something from every episode. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So my fun fact is I'm a huge and utter nerd. I love everything board games, online games. I play Pathfinder every Saturday night. I have a gaming group that has been meeting every Saturday night for the last seven years. And we are, for all intents and purposes, a family. And we play just about anything under the sun that we can get our hands on. I have a couple of weird travel traditions. One of which is I almost absolutely must have ice cream in every country I visit. It is so far the only goal, only tradition I have been able to keep up properly since my first one failed being collect a sticker from every country. I still collect stickers to this day, so if you have any stickers, I want to see them. My fun fact about myself is I am the preppiest metalhead you'll ever find. I love dressing cute and being cozy and like oversized sweaters, but give me that death metal and I'll have like a great day. That's awesome. It's great getting to know it's great getting to know facts about you two that I didn't know before. So this podcast is going to fall into a different type of format. Most podcasts talk about one topic per episode. The way that we've decided to do this podcast is each topic is going to take up two episodes. The first part, so the first episode, is going to be our interview with a guest. And the second part of the topic will come in the next episode. And that will be a roundtable discussion amongst the co-hosts. That way we can sit and we can have kind of an informed discussion. So we can mull over what we learned in the interview, interesting points, things we hadn't considered. We can basically just sit and chat about the information that we got during the interview. We're trying to give it more of a personal flair, more of a cozy down home feel. We want you guys to feel comfortable. That being said, we're going to get into our mission statement. And uh, Danny, I was wondering if you would be interested in taking on our mission statement. Of course. So it is the mission of the Breadcrumb Trails podcast to help connect and inspire young and old travelers with the world around them through the help of researched facts and firsthand experiences. That's awesome. We spent a lot of time thinking that one over and we hope that through researched fact and firsthand experience that you guys are able to, at least like I said earlier, take something away from this. So now we're going to get into our code of ethics. This is literally just getting everything out on the table so we have kind of an air of transparency. So our code of ethics, first and foremost, non-discriminatory. We don't, we don't tolerate discrimination here in any aspect. We want a welcome and open feel for everybody. We have a zero tolerance policy for ism or harassment of any kind. That's racism, sexism, those sorts of things. And along with that goes homophobia, transphobia, you know, the standard kit and caboodle. We want everybody to be as non-judgmental as possible. Everybody has a right to speak and have their opinions heard no matter whether or not somebody else agrees or disagrees. This is an open environment. This is an open arena for people to talk. That being said, 
make sure you're respectful of, of everybody else that's around the table or that you are communicating with. Opinions that individuals have are their own, whether co-host, audience, or interviewee, and they should be allowed to express them. Don't shove your opinions down other people's throat. They don't have to take them. Don't break any laws, and make sure that while you're expressing things, that said expression follows all of the rules that we've laid out for the scope of this podcast. And Carol, I was wondering if you could take our end goal for us, what we hope to accomplish with this project. Absolutely. So our end goal in general as the Breadcrumb Trails is to encourage people to take a leap of faith, to check out that destination you have always been curious about or even might be nervous to go to. We want to teach people to respect the culture that you are traveling to and hopefully learn from it and take it back to experience it for yourself. We would like to educate the people about the world around them. We are two budding journalists and I'm a scientist at heart and we want to use our current personal experiences to give you guys some up-to-date, some cold hard information to help you guys out. I am absolutely in awe of what we're creating here as well as the passion that both of my co-hosts Danny and Carol have I think expressed. So I think next we have decided since this is episode one that it's going to be a bit of a shorter episode. It's not going to follow the regular format and this should be the only episode that does not follow that format as far as we can see at the moment. There may be others we don't know we haven't quite planned out just yet but we are going to be getting into a story this episode and that story is going to be coming from myself and then Carol and Danny are going to sit down and interview me about that story and about my experiences. Just so you know The story that I'm going to be talking about does contain fairly sensitive subject matter. It is going to be based around the topic of suicide, so just so you know, you have been forewarned. Welcome back, folks. Carol and I are going to interview our co-host Gina. Gina went on a trip to Japan. She spent three weeks there and went on a very fun adventure in a forest. So why don't we start with Gina just telling us a little bit about her trip and kind of what happened in this particular forest. I went to visit Japan for two and a half to three weeks as part of an anthropology study, an independent anthropology study with the uh, anthropology department of McEwen University. And while I was there, I had a chance to take a trek through Aokigahara. Aokigahara is a forest that sits at the base of Mount Fuji. It is an extremely fertile area due to the lava flows that flowed there at one point. And in this forest, there is a small section of it that is known as Suicide Forest. And this forest is huge in Japanese culture and lore. This forest has been for centuries the number one spot in Japan to commit suicide. It has been the number one spot to drop off the feeble, the elderly, the sickly, the people that your family cannot take care of. They were just abandoned to the forest. This forest has a certain aura about it. It has a certain stigma surrounding death. And it's also the number two spot in the world at the moment for people to commit suicide as well. This accounts for all types of suicide, whether trying to salvage one's family honor or ritualistic suicide or otherwise. There have been certain issues with people venturing into this forest in recent days and not paying the respect that it deserves. Not going to name names, but I'm sure there's a certain name that comes to mind for both of you. It was an enlightening experience for me. It is an experience that I will never forget. 
traveling through this forest, everything looks the same. When you hear, when you watch YouTube videos about it and you hear people talking about how everything looks the same and how it is incredibly easy to get lost, they're not lying. Every rock, every tree, it all looks the same. You can walk by the same spot 50 times and think that you're going in a straight line. And on the other hand, you can walk by 50 different spots and think that you've passed by the same spot 50 times. There is a bit of a factor of creepiness because of what this forest represents. There is a stigma surrounding this forest with Japanese culture. Within Japanese culture, people generally don't talk about the forest by name. When I was staying with my Airbnb host in Mishima, I, she asked what I was going to be doing and I mentioned specifically that one of the things I was planning to do was to go visit Suicide Forest and she refused to mention this forest by name. She refused to acknowledge that this was the part of the forest that I was going through. She asked me if I was going, you know, a few kilometers away to the bat caves or to the ice caves and she just generally avoided the whole area. But the part that sticks with me the most is that I had met up with a group of hobby hikers from the Philippines. And the, these are three people that I will never forget. They allowed me to tag along with them because I had originally gone by myself. It just happened to be coincidence that I had met up with them as we were heading into the forest. We started out about 10.30 in the morning, 10, 10.30, somewhere around there. And we hiked for a few hours. And I mean, I'm not a small person, so I was pretty tired by the time we actually got to Suicide Forest proper. But then we ventured in and you can be standing on the path in this forest, this path that you followed in and turn around and your path is gone. It's only visible generally from one side. It is a vanishing path. It's an optical illusion, which is terrifying in itself. They say that you're not supposed to stray off the path, but we ended up getting lost in the forest for an hour. And this was probably one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. By the time we left, there was about an hour of daylight left. We'd actually ended up, in order to find our way out, strayed off of the path and essentially cut a line straight through the forest. And what's absolutely creepy is that while we were in the forest, our GPS stopped working and our compasses stopped working. So you have no frame of reference while you're inside. It is an extremely humbling experience, especially with today's technology. It is an experience that I will never forget, but I've also seen in that forest sights of beauty that I never would have seen otherwise. And this is something that I think sticks with me and it's going to stick with me uh, until the day that I pass on. So Carol, I'm going to get you to ask the first questions because I know you have quite the list and then I will bounce off your questions. All right. So Gina, during these circumstances, one would usually have a woulda, coulda, shoulda thought. Did you have one? If you did, what was it? My woulda, coulda, shoulda thought was that I probably should have brought something to I guess, protect myself or to sleep on during the night, even if it's just like this inexpensive mattress or this tarp. Uh, it was that I also should have brought something to cover my backpack. Originally, I was planning to go into this forest alone. So my other woulda, coulda, shoulda thought was, that's a stupid move. And you know what they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. But that is, uh, again, a learning and growing experience that could have been very costly, but I did learn something from it. What tips do you have for others for instances like this, like getting lost, venturing into a superstitious place, like what advice can you offer? Make sure that you know your survival techniques. Make sure that you're at least carrying a first aid kit on you should something happen. Maybe some emergency rations and a couple of bottles of water. I went in with, uh, I went in with two, three bars of Calorie Mate, which is essentially a calorie substitute. It's a meal replacement thing. They taste like chalk, but they are good for calories should you need them. And I also went in with two bottles 
of Picari Sweat, one of them completely solid, so I would have something cold to drink, like completely frozen solid, so I would have something cold to drink. And one of them was literally just refrigerated. It was sitting next to the frozen bottle, so it would sort of stay chilled. The other thing I would highly recommend is having a plan B. So if something happens, what are you gonna do? What sort of plan B could you do in that circumstance? In that forest, I would essentially say, stay put. Scream at the top of your lungs. Chances are nobody's gonna hear you, but it can't hurt. If you've got cell service, then you're like five miles ahead of where I was. We had no cell service. I'm not really sure what I would have done in that respect. The people of Japan have their superstition surrounding the forest. What made you go despite all of that, despite your guide telling you essentially not to or avoiding the topic altogether? So I'm not going to hide the fact that part of the reason that I went to Japan was to see this forest. It was kind of like a pilgrimage for me. Most people, you know, some people go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Some people go to Athena's Temple in Greece. Some people make pilgrimages to other sites. For me, one of the sites that I wanted to visit was Suicide Forest. I've been fascinated with this place for years and it was kind of like a dream come true and almost a spiritual experience for me to be able to experience this. That being said, I also tried to be as respectful as I could when dealing with this forest and any media involved. I made a video of it, of my trip to Japan, and I included some of the forest, but before I uploaded it, before I edited it, I spent hours scouring every millisecond of that video for anything that could be considered controversial and trying to do my due diligence. I tried to be as respectful to the culture and to the myths as I could because I wanted to show off the beauty of this place but at the same time, you also have to realize that this is a place that holds huge significance in Japanese culture. Do you have a different view on life or death after this? I feel like they say there's a phrase, you know, you're on death's doorstep or you've got one foot in the grave almost. I feel like I understand, I guess, the cycle of life and death a little better. That might sound absolutely crazy, but I feel like I've seen the face of death and I've come out alive. I feel like had things happened just a little bit differently that I probably may not be sitting here talking about this. When we were in the forest, some of the things that we found were a campfire that looked like it had been used the day before. We found somebody's school backpack full of supplies. We also found a hiking backpack abandoned in a gully just outside of a cave that looked like it was completely stocked with survival equipment and a side pouch for emergency gear. That just kind of drives home how dangerous this forest is. I feel like I have a wider understanding of the world around me. I feel like I have a wider understanding of the life and death cycle. And at the same time, I've gained valuable knowledge that I can take and put into practical use in throughout the rest of my life, essentially. I, and on top of that, I have a really cool travel story now. Are there any other locations in the world that have this kind of mystique, this kind of heaviness to it? There are a few, uh, but each culture approaches things differently. Each culture looks at these types of things differently. The first few that pop to mind, one is the Alamo because of the loss of life that happened there. Another one is Chernobyl because of the nuclear explosion. I want to say Fukushima is now becoming kind of enshrouded in that type of mystery. 
It's a trend known as dark tourism. It's a type of tourism that the places that people go to visit are generally equated with significant loss of life. And the other one that comes to mind that I will never, ever, ever in my life film is Auschwitz out of respect for what happened there. Yeah, I hear there are a couple of places in Canada that has spots like this, even in Alberta itself, one of which being Banff Springs Hotel, apparently, and another being um, Atlas Coal Mine over in close to Drumheller. Um, I'm going to circle back a little bit towards your um, trip. You obviously did a lot of um, research before you went into the forest, and how would you say, based on your knowledge, the Japanese culture, I guess, deals with and respects this forest as opposed to other countries like how Auschwitz is dealt with in a cultural aspect? I think with Japan, there is a mentality of they realize that it's there, that it's a thing, but they don't really talk about it. And any mention of it is considered taboo. I guess kind of the scope of what this forest is, this place is a essentially giant burial ground and has been throughout the centuries. They've actually stopped, because of the amount of tourists that go through this forest for the thrill, they've actually stopped counting the numbers of people that they find that have passed on within this forest in order to mitigate, I guess, or discourage people from going through the forest. It's a place of honor almost. It's a place of mystery. But at the same time, the Japanese also believe that the spirits that find themselves trapped in the forest are corrupted by the energy in the forest, and I believe they call them yurei, which are essentially malevolent spirits, and they believe that these spirits can also follow one home and cause havoc in your life, should you not take proper precautions. Has the Japanese government tried to do anything to change the suicide force, like change the, I guess the reputation it has as a prime spot for suicide or discourage suicide or anything like that? To my knowledge, no, but that doesn't mean that they haven't tried. They have, however, posted no entry signs. They have posted signs at the beginning of the forest that say something along the lines of death is not the answer. You know, think of your loved ones, think of your family, your friends, think of your siblings. You can get help, call this number. And th that's posted at almost all of the entrances to this forest. The Japanese have a huge understanding of, I, I want to say mental health, or they at least seem like they do. And if you mention that there's mental health issues, they usually understand that better than if I was to walk up to them and say, you know what, I've got ADHD or whatever. They take stuff like that very seriously. And they're willing to, I guess, give mental health issues a bit of a gloss over or not, not a gloss over, but they're, they're willing to, I guess, work around it, from what I understand. As much as they try, there's only so much that they can do. And I believe they realize this, but that doesn't stop them from trying. Like I said, they put up the precautionary signs. They've put up the chain link, the chain links across with the no entry signs on it. And while we were walking actually up one of the main paths towards the entrance for this forest, we were kind of standing around outside and we had a... I want to say ranger or park attendant, forest attendant, whatever you want to call uh, that role, walk by us. And he looked at us and in perfect English without missing a beat, he said, are you all right? 
And we're like, yeah, we're just curious. We're just here to see. And he's like, all right, and he went on. So they actually do have people that walk that path on a consistent basis, looking for people who might be looking like they're in trouble or not quite sure. And that in itself speaks volumes, I think. Were there any rituals or prayers that you made before going in? Me personally, no. That being said, I also did a cleansing ritual after I came out. Um, according to my personal beliefs, I'm not going to get too much into that here, but I did cleanse myself afterwards and whatnot, and I did pay homage to the forest. I did sh show respect for it. So I don't believe the forest has anything, any malice, has any reason to have any malice against me. How would you say the experience in that forest was... Um you have your own beliefs, but for someone that doesn't have a belief in a spiritual connection. To be fair, I honestly couldn't say. I'm not that person. I don't have those beliefs or lack of beliefs. I want to say they'd approach it a little differently than I did, maybe a little more skeptical. But again, I don't have information. Uh, I don't have accurate information to give any sort of judgment on that. So I think that's all of our major questions for Gina on her trip. Is there anything we missed that you wanted to bring up that we that you wanted to talk about? Make sure you're prepared. Like I said, make sure you've got that first aid kit. Make sure you've got a plan B. Make sure you've got, I guess, emergency gear should you need it. And don't screw around. Be as respectful as you possibly can. I do understand if you make mistakes, if you do have a kind of your values don't always align, but you are a guest there try to be as respectful as possible even like we acknowledge we all acknowledge naivety but kind of think twice think three times if you have to well it's like they say rule number one of not being a dick is don't be a dick you know respect the fact that you're not in your home country that you're not on home soil respect the fact that you are visiting and that you are a visitor and show them the respect that they deserve as a country that is hosting you. Remember, while you're out there, while you're traveling, you are representative of your country. Just like when I went, I was a representative of Canada. I was a representative of my school. So I tried my best, my absolute best, to be on my best behavior and not upset the normal balance while I was there. And I got some really amazing sights, some really amazing memories out of it. Another thing I kind of want to bring up is Mistakes are going to happen, especially in the world of social media, influencers, Facebook, Instagram, especially YouTube. Be careful what you post, especially. I understand if you, you have a bit of a meltdown and you do some nervous laughing, but if at all it seems a little bit sketchy, let's say, you want to be careful of the backlash you might get. So while that's a really fantastic story. It is quite a heavy subject, so I'm hoping as we kind of come towards the end of this episode, we can kind of bring it back to a bit of a lighter tone. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more of the rest of your trip to Japan, as opposed to just the forest, some of the things that like, some of those other memories that you really cherish. Oh boy. So I saw a six foot tall giant moving robot while I was in Odaiba. That was absolutely amazing. I'm looking at pictures of my trip from when I from when I went last summer. And you see this giant robot, and then not even coming up to the bottom of its feet are the five foot, six foot people. Like this thing is huge. What else did I do? I got to see Tokyo from 42 stories up. 
at the top of the Metro, uh, Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building. I got to visit one of the world's oldest shopping arcades, which is essentially essentially a street. It's a covered street that has turned into a market, essentially, and I got to try some really delicious okonomiyaki as well as takoyaki while I was in Osaka. Uh, I learned a couple of new phrases. I got to go to Ito, and I got to see the Pacific Ocean while I was there. Ito is a resort town. I spent one night there in a traditional Japanese room. They served me a traditional Japanese supper and a traditional Japanese breakfast in the morning, complete with fish. The bed was laid out on a tatami mat floor, which was absolutely amazing. Probably one of the worst nights of sleep I've ever had, but it was absolutely amazing just to experience it. And the place that I stayed was actually an onsen, which means it is a salt water hot spring, all natural, uh, with a gorgeous view of the resort. I got to ride a bullet train at 300 kilometers an hour, and I want to go back because they're supposed to be developing a maglev for the Olympics that's supposed to go twice that. So I was able to get from Tokyo to Osaka within four or five hours. So the maglev's supposed to be able to go double that. And I really, really want to experience that. I got to go to Akihabara. I got to go to Takashita Street, which is a nerd haven. And then, of course, Akihabara is the electronics district. And I actually picked up my first gimbal, my first phone stabilizer there. So that was amazing. Uh, what else did I do? I got to catch Pokemon in Pokemon Go in, like, all over Tokyo. Came back with some regional exclusives for a bunch of friends. Still haven't picked them up yet, but we're working on it. They, and these are regional exclusives that you can only get in Japan. Like, that, that's something special. I'm uh, Like I said, I'm a complete nutter nerd. Anything gaming related, and I'm probably all over it. So jealous. When I went over there, I didn't have time to play Pokemon Go. I was just going everywhere I could. I was like a chicken with her head cut off. Just, I gotta go here, I gotta go here, I gotta go here, I gotta go here. Granted, I did lump everything into individual piles that I could actually access and get as much done as possible, but I barely even had time to eat. How did you manage your time so well? I just kind of went with the flow. So I spent a... Uh... The previous 12 months looking into the, and organizing this trip and researching it. I spent six of those months plotting out destinations that I wanted to go. I didn't plot down to the day, but I knew what city I was going to be in for how long. I pinned a bunch of stuff on my Google Maps that I wanted to do. And then basically took it an hour at a time. Oh, this is cool. You know, let's go take a look at that. This is right nearby. Hey, this is food. Let's, you know, I'm hungry. Let's go get something to eat. So I had all these destinations plotted out that are actually still pinned on my Google Maps. Um, I didn't get to do everything that I wanted to do, but I did get to do a lot. And as far as how I was able to play Pokemon Go, envision me on a bullet train, so a Shinkansen going 300 kilometers an hour, hitting Pokestops as we roll into each city. Because when you get that close to a city, the train tends to slow down. You open up Pokemon Go and you play, spin the Pokestops, and away you go, on to the next one. Any advice for someone who's never been to Japan and like, I guess, the major points and stops that they should make? Get a Wi-Fi egg. Tokyo. Um, Tokyo's got a lot of great spots in it. I really also enjoyed Osaka. And Mishima, while it's smaller, it's a little quieter. It was really nice for some rest and relaxation in the middle of my trip, despite the fact that I got lost in Suicide Forest. Uh, so Mishima, if you're looking for kind of, a, I guess, a quieter spot would be kind of awesome. Didn't get to go to Kyoto. I think that's going to be next trip. And I didn't get to go to Hiroshima Park, which is something that I am disappointed about. But my Airbnb host uh, was can't my Airbnb stay was canceled on me last minute, which is a shame. 
But again, this this was the trip of a lifetime for me and I plan on going back if I can ever make it. I plan on saving up and I actually, next time I go, I'm gonna be taking a bit more time. So instead of two and a half weeks, the plan is for me to spend two months in Japan and backpack across the part of the country, staying in hostels. Kind of get the, I guess the budget travel uh, view of it. And at the same time, I also want to stay in a couple of five-star hotels, you know, those ones that are three, four, five hundred dollars a night, at least once. And so I can say I have done it once in my life in probably one of the most sought-after cities or countries in the world. It's weird because Japan itself is turning itself into, like, the country, not, not just any city or any specific area of the city. Japan, the country itself, seems to be turning itself into one giant amusement park with several different areas that cater to each and every niche that you could possibly think of. So it's definitely worth a go if you get the chance. You can eat quite the nice stuff in 7-Eleven of all places in Japan. I had the best rice ball I have ever had in my life from a 7-Eleven. I have tried so hard to recreate it. I have not been successful and I've been trying for two years. You talking onigiri? Yeah. So the gorgeous thing about convenience stores in Japan here in North America, we have a conception or a pre, uh, we have an understanding of what convenience store is. It's processed, it's fast, and it's probably got a crap ton of sugar in it. One of the gorgeous things about convenience stores like 7-Eleven or Family Mart in Japan is it's cheap, it's affordable, and it's actually somewhat nutritious. You can easily survive off of meals from a 7-Eleven or Family Mart in Japan if you have to and not worry as much about your nutrition. I'm not going to say it's the best, but it's definitely a step above what we've got here. It's like miles ahead of what we've got here. And I cannot wait to experience that again. Well, we are getting a little off track because our focus of this interview was about cultural faux pas. We, thanks to the efforts of Carol, have a Facebook page and an Instagram. Eventually, we will also have an email for you guys to send in emails for you guys to communicate with us. But for the moment, you are more than welcome to visit us on Facebook and Instagram under Breadcrumb Trails Podcast. You'll be able to find our logos on the icons and hopefully next episode, once we have things set up and smoothed out, we will have the actual handle for you as well as an email set up that you guys can communicate with us at. So until then, I'm Danny. I'm Gina. I'm Carol. And this is the Breadcrumb Trails Podcast. Welcome. Enjoy the journey.